This is QC Pod. I'm Samantha Galvez Montiel. Today, we will be meeting with Benjamin Strassfield of the Media Studies Department at Queens College. He teaches media censorship as well as media criticism. I have asked him to talk about his thoughts on the recent terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol and former President Trump's ban on many social media outlets. As a professor of media studies, he gives us insight into the picture the news media paints, as well as the major differences between reality and fiction we have come to see this past year of 2020. We deep dive into the upcoming presidency of Joe Biden and the new social changes to come. So, okay, so first up, I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on what happened? Uh, most people spent January 6th just constantly, you know, updating social media and, re- and reading the news and watching the news and horrified. Um, it was it was a terrifying, terrifying day. Um, and those images of rioters on the floor of the U.S. Senate um, were terrifying. And the kind of knowledge of how, for as bad as this was, it could have been even worse. Um, there could have been um, executions. There could have been bombs set off. That all of that is absolutely terrifying. Do you think it was like partly the media's fault because they have been reporting what Trump's been saying, and it also caused like an excitement in people? I mean, I think first off, we need to be we need to think about what we mean when we say the media because we're talking about a lot of different things. Um, types of media outlets and then also different types of media social media um, um, uh, tv news media so on so there's a couple things there one is that very clearly there is a kind of right-wing news echo chamber that has parroted yeah a lot of president trump's uh, conspiracy theories about the election being stolen and echoing those comments and and pushing them forward um, they created the kind of context for the events of January 6th and bear real kind of culpability for that. I also think that, yeah, there's other questions about what, uh, yeah, what the kind of role of, of mainstream news um, media is in this. Um, should they have been covering Trump in a different way, one that didn't, even if they were trying to push back against these, you know, lies and conspiracy theories that they were kind of uh, inadvertently and so it's a question, yeah, should they have been, um, you, you know, covering Trump in a different way? I don't think we have the answer to that, but obviously it's going to be a question that we're going to be asking for a while. So like the way people are like conservatives, like Tommy Lauren is tweeting about this like crazy. And I'm sure you're familiar with her, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So she's trying to like she posted something um, along the lines of, you know, distraught and upset about what happened. But liberals loved it you know, early on this year. And do you think it compares to Black Lives Matter protests and like other protests that have happened this year? No, they're not comparable. <laughs> they're, they're not. Um, I mean, they're not comparable in a lot of different ways. One being that um, there's a difference in, um, in expressions of, of, of protesting and anger born out of real police brutality and systemic racism versus an attempt to overturn an election and stage a coup. These are just kind of fundamentally different things. Um, and the vast, vast majority of, of Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful. And I also think that there is a difference between looting a target and going into capital um, with the intention of assassinating the vice president of the United States and the speaker of the house. And we need to be able to distinguish these things because they are not the same. Um, that being said, we do need to have a discussion about, yeah, how social movements, yeah, protest movements organize online. And there are similarities in the kind of use of social media between these two things. Yeah, there's hope that social media would, you know, overthrow authoritarian governments. And we saw that, yeah, around 2010-11 with the Arab Spring. And yeah, Black Lives Matter has used um, social media smart ways to, yeah, organize and to broadcast their message. Um, But when people were getting excited about the power of social media to, you know, fight back against authoritarianism, what a lot of people missed is that 
the far right extremists and white supremacists can do the same stuff. They can also organize on social media platforms and they've been doing it. Um, they've been doing it openly for years now. Um, and this is the result of that. I think it's really funny how we see like all these things and like people don't see that whatever, you know, Black Lives Matter people could do, so can other people. And it's so funny because I saw there's a bunch of videos saying like how if it was a Black Lives Matter protest, there would have been like tear gas and rubber bullets all over again. And um, what do you think is the most acceptable punishment for all these people that were there? But what do you think is really going to happen to them? So, I mean, first to the point you make, yeah, they're deferring yeah, response to these protests, uh, Black Lives Matter and these riots at the Capitol. There's no way around that. Yeah, um, police have historically treated leftist protesters far, far more harshly than far right protesters. And the Capitol is just one example of that. As to yeah, what's going to happen to these people, I mean, I think that, look, I think that this was so bad that there's a good chance that like, there will be real consequences for the people who broke in and stole stuff from Nancy Pelosi's office and who were violent with Capitol Police officers. Um, I think that there will be real consequences in part because this was such a major event and we you know, need to feel like there's something happening. But the issue isn't, you know, what happens to these, you know, X number of people who broke into the Capitol. Um, the issue is the many other supporters and people who are going to um, QAnon supporters and, um, and white supremacists who are organizing online um, and are going to continue to do so. And this won't be the end. There will be more horrific events. And the question is, what do we do about that um, and what do we do to prevent the next version of this because unless we kind of deal with the broader problem and not just these you know rioters who were arrested unless we deal with that broader problem we're inevitably heading to another horrific event like this or like charlottesville or yeah any number of other kind of white supremacist um, violent actions yeah i think they're starting now because um i live like in maspeth and it's close to middle village and I saw in the news that some guy got arrested for posting like threats online that were kind of equivalent to the Capitol siege. And um, the FBI actually came out and arresting him and stuff. It's it's crazy how different it is now. Like people thought that, you know, you could say anything on the Internet, but now it's you can't say anything. on it. What is your thoughts on uh, Trump's ban off social media? People think it's like an infringement on his rights. I mean, a couple things as you know, having taken my class and anybody who's taken my media censorship course can tell you that this is not a First Amendment, right? That's the important thing that gets missed all the time in discussing this is that um, Facebook, Twitter can ban whoever it wants. Um, the First Amendment protects against the government curtailing speech. It doesn't protect against um, private companies choosing who is and is not on their platform. So that's like the first thing that needs to be said up front because, yeah, there is misunderstanding there that often gets repeated. I also think kind of more broadly is that two things. One is that um, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter have been um, regulating speech for years now, um, and conservatives and Republicans haven't had any issue with it. And the reason is because they were banning images of women's nipples and people breastfeeding, and they were banning um, sex workers from being on their platforms. And throughout that, all that's going on, there's no outrage. Um, everybody's just kind of okay with that type of suppression of speech by these um, social media platforms. And and now there's a kind of outrage over this. Um, I would take that outrage more seriously if they were actually similarly outraged by all the types of suppression of speech that had been going on for years on these platforms. And then the, the other point I'll make here is that the reason, broadly speaking, the reason that Facebook and Twitter are constantly kind of having to take such a major role in figuring out, yeah, what is hate speech that we're going to take off our platform and what isn't. The reason that they have to do so is because the U.S. government doesn't do so. 
we can contrast what the US does here with what Germany does. And Germany, after the Holocaust, realized that um, certain types of hate speech lead to violence. Um, and so they have policies enacted against hate speech. You cannot deny the Holocaust in Germany, can't espouse hate speech there. Um, it is a crime. Uh, the U.S. hasn't dealt with its history of white supremacy. It hasn't dealt with its history of fascism in this country. And so as a result of not kind of reckoning with that, we allow hate speech to proliferate. And so the reality is that a lot of most of the kind of hate speech websites um, um, around the globe, most of them are based in the U.S. because um, if they're based in the U.S., they can be allowed to operate in ways that if they were based in uh, much of Europe, they wouldn't allow, be allowed to be. So all that is just to say that the reason that, yeah, Facebook and Twitter have such an incredibly powerful role um, in kind of figuring out their policies and shaping speech is because the U.S. government has um, refused to do so and has refused to take um, a stand on hate speech and is allowed to proliferate. And that's the reason that you have social media platforms trying to figure out what their policies should be. Do you think people will find it equivalent to China if their speech was kind of like limited like that by the government? Because if they stepped in all the time, what would be differentiating what hate, what hate speech is? Because canceled is like kind of like I mean, hate speech. I'll say two things. One, um, in terms of like, yeah, canceled, things like that. Uh, I think we need to make a distinction between someone being canceled and someone being censored. A lot of, you know, uh, a lot of people have been canceled or doing just fine. You know, J.K. Rowling was canceled because um, she had transphobic comments. J.K. Rowling's a billionaire. She's writing a new movie right now. She'll have a new book coming out soon. She's doing fine. This notion of like people getting canceled and like that's the end of their life and the end of their career. Yeah, that's like a thing we could talk about. But um, these notions often get really kind of overblown and that people can be criticized and should be criticized for um, certain views that they espouse. And them being criticized is not the same thing as them being canceled. As to your other question about, yeah, kind of comparison to China, I think that I think the reality is that the U.S., um, there, is, there are ways to figure out what hate speech is and to make definitions of it. There are other places that do so. And part of that means the kind of reckoning with, yeah, kind of power imbalances. And we don't kind of like to do that in this country. We're kind of squeamish about these notions. So we don't like the, you know, idea of, of differentiating between the statements black power and white power. But there are real differences between those statements. The, there are real differences between those statements. And so part of the issue is that we don't want to, in this country, kind of recognize race as a thing, um, recognize power of, of these racial categories and kind of structures in our society as a whole. And so there are ways to deal with hate speech, but it's going to take kind of reckoning with power relations and power differentials and understanding, yeah, statements applied to different groups carry different weight because of the violence and um, suppression of certain marginalized groups in the society. Do you think with the inauguration coming up, do you think anything's going to happen? Or like, what do you think would happen? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I don't know, obviously. Um, I, I hope that events of January 6th at the Capitol were such a um, wake-up call to um, this country that it won't happen again, or at least it won't happen right now so soon afterwards. I think that, you know, there was, it's also about what are the things that happen, but we don't end up costing people lives. So yeah, there was somebody who was apparently had falsified papers for the to get into the inauguration who got arrested because they were falsified and because he was trying to bring in a van that had 500 rounds of ammunition and guns and and he got caught and nothing happened so like that'll be a kind of footnote that we all move on from and forget about months and years from now but i think we aren't fully recognize reckoning with all the kind of very close things to happening that don't end up happening. And so we all kind of move on. Last year, there was a plot to kidnap and kill the governor of Michigan by far-right extremists. And we all just kind of moved on from this. But there was a plot to kidnap and kill and assassinate a sitting governor. And yeah, I hope that there isn't um, new violence. But I think, yeah, 
I think fears of that are certainly well-founded. I don't know if you know, but I do run like the school account, the school papers TikTok account. And I, what I've been seeing a lot of is that um, people from the other parts of the world are just like America. Are you okay? Like, do you think the siege of the Capitol would be like a prime example of what America really is about? It's a great question. And I think that's, you know, yeah, particularly as we're moving into the, you know, Biden administration now, I think what that's a question we're going to have to really grapple with. And there's going to be, yeah, on the one hand, you have Biden using kind of language of like about the capital attacks, like that this isn't us, like we, this isn't the America that we all know and love, like we are a country that is great and united and does amazing things. And there's obviously, yeah, particularly after the last four years, a power in the kind of unifying message like that. And I understand the kind of political utility of a message like that. At the same time, yeah, as a his- historian, uh, the events of the Capitol were very much a part of a long history of what's been going on in this country of white supremacists, far-right extremists, fascist supporters who don't believe in democracy and are willing to enact violence to um, suppress those who they see as their enemies. So yeah, I, I think, you know, I know it's a bit of two answers there, but I think, yeah, on the one hand, there is a importance to rejecting this as a kind of as being as being American and in, in ideology and in their ideals and at the same time understanding that this fits with a broader history that is very much part of America's history. It's always that other mentality of get over it, it happened 400 years ago but what I think to that is it it's still happening because you know look at what happened just recently and look at how many people are still okay with using the n-word such a mean way it's not an, it's a term of endearment now you know amongst african americans and um do you think america can't settle with change because you know with biden coming in that type of change is really different for the far right so do you think america has a problem with change like social change i mean i think that yeah one interpretation of what's been going on for the last uh, five years, um, not only with the rise of Trump, but with the rise of kind of, yeah, far right extremists, um, white supremacists kind of, yeah, proudly marking in the streets and um, QAnon, you know, growing in prominence online. Um, yeah, that one kind of a way of interpreting that is that um, last four or five years then is about um, that there is a violent backlash to perceived change in American society. America, the country is getting more diverse. We saw our, obviously first black president in this country's history and those changes being undergone by America, those are only rapidly kind of moving forward. And it's not just about race, it's also about gender, sexuality, continue on down the list. And yeah, you have a sense that America is changing and getting more diverse and that particularly among white men, though white women also play a kind of role in this as well, is that there's a backlash to that. There's fears of what that means for them and fears of, yeah, their perceived diminishing social power. And that's a problem. Yeah, that's that creates, yeah, the kind of conditions for extremism and violence. And it's scary and something we need to reckon with. But the reality is that the changes of this country getting more diverse, those, those, that's not going to stop. That's, that's what's happening. The demographic trends are the demographic trends. And so it's about us figuring out ways to know alleviate um backlash to that do you think that with biden's coming presidency i voted for him and it was like the lesser evil you know like a lot of people said that are you pro-biden or are you just anti-trump i'm anti-trump as an asian person i don't like i don't appreciate him calling it kung flu it only just hurts us it doesn't really you know help us what do you think um will come out of biden's presidency do you think any change will really happen because people have this weird image that'll happen like overnight and things will be amazing. I think that the yeah Obama years can teach us some stuff about what to expect. On the one hand, there was real change um, enacted during Obama's eight years in office. On the other hand, like, you know, the hopes in 2008 that we were going to be entering some kind of political utopia with Obama becoming president 
clearly that didn't happen. The reality of change is that it's slow, that it's really, really messy, um, and that it's really hard. And it's particularly hard when there is intransigent opposition fighting tooth and nail everything. And that's part of the question that's going to come up now is, yeah, for a lot of Obama's presidency, he was actively trying to kind of win over Republican support in the Senate and in Congress and and hoping that he could enact sensible bipartisan solutions to um, key issues. And those largely failed. I mean, they largely failed because Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell at that time felt that there was no political utility for Republicans to cooperate with President Obama or other Democrats. And so that meant that, yeah, all the kind of policy making that was happening during Obama's administration that that was happening without any type of real bipartisan support. And so the question is going into this, you know, yeah, Biden administration is did Biden learn from that? Is he going to spend um, the next four years trying to win over Republican support on issues that he's just not going to win their support on? Or is he going to try to enact real legislation that will make a real difference um, and do so largely without public support. I mean, it's great if he can get it on certain issues, but, you know, there's a problem when one of the two political parties doesn't believe that climate change is real. It is. And, and it becomes very difficult to, yeah, enact, you know, we should be having a debate over how we respond to climate change. What are the specific policies that we should yeah, enact to address, you know, this issue. But if one of the two political parties doesn't believe it's happening, then you can't really, you know, find a compromise there. And so all that is just a long way of saying, like, we don't know what's going to happen. But yeah, certainly, I, I don't think that Republican opposition to any type of Democratic you know, proposed policies, that that's just going to disappear and we're going to enter some new bipartisan era. It's going to be about fighting tooth and nail. It's about people are going to have to show up in the midterms in, in 2022 and um, continue to vote and continue to um, enact change at the local level as well. When the siege happened, it was just announced that we have um, a Democratic Senate. And it, it's crazy. Like, you know, it's always been Republican, as long as I remember. And I think people think that that's what's going to make the change. Do you think that's like the ultimate part in like making change? I mean, like changing the level of power. I think that ultimately um, Democrats, now that they're back in power, they need to set their sights on kind of reforming our democratic system. The reality is that in the last eight presidential elections, Democrats have won the popular vote seven times out of eight. Um, and two of those times that they won the popular vote, they lost the election because of a really antiquated electoral college system. The reality is that you have trouble remembering when Democrats controlled the Senate is because the Senate, as it's made up, favors um, Republicans because of how much more weight smaller states are given in the U.S. Senate. So yeah, the reality is that California, which has 50, 100 times as many people as, as Wyoming, they have the same number of U.S. senators. And so that's why, yeah, people are pushing for statehood for um, Washington, D.C. People are pushing for Puerto Rico to be given statehood. And people are pushing for a new Voting Rights Act to be enacted um, after uh, the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s. Republicans, yeah, in recent years have been pushing to enact laws designed to make it harder to vote. And I think a lot of the problem for why we don't get more political participation in, in elections is just how hard we make it to vote in this country. And so I think hopefully, uh, yeah, it's not just about like, you know, if we win a presidency in the Senate, then we can enact these reforms on the climate or healthcare or, or um, taxes. And those issues are important, but Hopefully, you're also paying attention to the fact that the Electoral College is majorly biased towards um, the Republican Party. The Senate is majorly biased towards a Republican Party and enacting reforms to make it easier to voting and make our democracy work better. I feel like we haven't really caught on to what democracy really means. Like, I feel like it's just got lost in all the politics of everything. Like, what do you think is like the number one thing that's wrong with politics and like political leaders because i feel like learning about everything people think that you know conservatives just care about abortion limiting female rights and all that stuff but really i think that 
they've just changed the Catholic meaning. Like, what does it mean to be Catholic? And what does it mean to have the beliefs of a Catholic? They take a whole Bible and just take out one piece of it. So, like, what do you think is, like, the biggest problem in politics? Do you think it's just a twisting of words? Or, like, they just take everything and just use it for their agenda type of thing? I mean, I think that there's a couple of things here. One, um, yeah, that we are increasingly no longer all accepting the same facts and yeah to go back to what i said before climate change is real there's a large portion of the country that doesn't believe that climate change is real and the 2020 presidential election was free and fair and was not stolen but there's a large portion of country including the majority of republican voters who believe that the election was stolen and that trump actually won you can go down the list. Yeah, I still remember when half of the Republican Party was saying that President Obama was not born in the United States. When we stop having the same set of facts and reality that we can all agree upon, um, we get into a major yeah, bit of trouble where we can't really have dialogue if we don't have a kind of shared reality that we are all operating within. So that's, yeah, a big thing. And and part of that is related to, and this the other kind of thing is, yes, you have different uh, media landscapes and, um, yeah, you have kind of conservative media, both, you know, Fox News, but also kind of far-right outlets like Breitbart, Drudge Report, who are pushing one kind of worldview and one that is very disconnected from, yeah, the worldview you would get from watching more mainstream news outlets. And so there's all that, yeah, you have these kind of two sets of realities and these two kind of truths that are being propagated in this country. And yeah, let's be clear there, you know, there are facts still, there are, you know, truths to some of these issues. Not every issue has two sides to it. Some issues really only have one side. Um, Some issues have more than two sides. And so we need to kind of grapple with that and also, yeah, really kind of reform our democratic institutions and um and our voting procedures and you know how the electoral college works and the senate works all those types of things to yeah make our democratic system work and make sense and i think that um hopefully should make a difference but none of these things there's no cure-all to these to these things and i think nobody nobody knows what you know is this just going to keep getting worse um Is this the beginning of something or is this the end of something? And I think we're going to see. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't even ask how are you. Like, how's your quarantine and your your whole um, semester been? Because it's crazy. We had to transition. I remember I was in your class still. I mean, I think I can, you know, probably speak for most Queens College professors when I say that, uh, Teaching online sucks. Um, it's 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 both a lot more work and much harder for faculty. And I also think that it's not as good of a you know education for students. And we don't get the fun of teaching is being in a classroom with students and interacting with students and engaging with students. Um, and don't get that online, at least not in the same way. And so yeah. That's hard. That said, you know, pandemics are pandemics and you got to do what you got to do to keep people safe and people should, you know, stay safe, keep quarantining and socially isolating and wear a mask and do what you need to do so we can get to the other side of this and restore some sense of normalcy afterwards. But, you know, quarantine's been hard. The last 10 months have been hard, but surviving, you know, I'm, I've, I'm healthy, so could be worse. Surviving. <laughs> yeah. Um... Are you, do you plan on getting the COVID vaccine if it ever reaches, you know, people with in our age groups? Yeah, um, I do. Um, I look forward to getting it. I am. Yeah, I frequently check to see. Yeah, when ish um, it looks like I'll be eligible to get it. Probably going to be a while, but look, you know, vaccines aren't. The cure-all, yeah, the vaccines that are being rolled out are only 95% effective, and it's going to be a while before anything in this country looks normal again. But um, yes, I I do look forward to getting a vaccine once it's available. Like, I work in a pharmacy, so as a tech, not a pharmacist. But yeah, we've been getting a lot of phone calls asking if we're going to get it, because I think I read an article that Biden said that pharmacies are going to take a big role in rolling out this vaccine and we're trying 
I work in stop and shop. So the bigger and the nicer stop and shops exist in Long Island. They're trying it over there first, and mm. they're going to do, because we're getting Moderna. And Moderna only lasts for six hours. Like, that's how long it's mm. effective. And we need to do an appointment based, and we need to make sure no oh, one calls wow. out. It's like a long and grueling process. And it just sucks because there's these old people coming up yeah. to me saying, I'm 81. You know, I think I should be able to get it. And it's like, I yeah. know, but I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you're, so you're saying that you don't have control over who gets to get a vaccine? That's that's, that's a crime. I don't, I don't know. They just keep on asking yeah. these questions and they give me this sad look, the sad old people look. And I'm just like, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, unfortunately, from yeah, my knowledge of this is limited. But from what I gather, we didn't put in place the infrastructure that we need to roll out the vaccine. To say nothing of the fact that we don't have enough enough doses of it, it's it's gonna be yeah a brutal next couple months. Um, trying to yeah, hopefully get people vaccinated, and it's but it's I don't know, it's gonna be a while. But can you believe how crazy it is that people didn't believe that masks can protect you from germs and what like it's so crazy because it's the same concept as washing your hands. Yeah. And that gets back to what I was saying before about like the dangers when we don't have a kind of shared set of facts and realities, which is that, yeah, like masks are like a really, really easy way to keep both yourself and more importantly, other people safe. Um, yeah, and if everybody would just universally wear masks, um, we wouldn't have 400,000 people dead. Um, and the fact that we can't all get on board with masks, which is like the easiest, you know, simplest, cheapest, you know, thing to do. Um, the fact that we can't all 100% of the population get on board with everybody should wear a mask, um, that's distressing, needless to say. In the very beginning, um, people were scared. But then, like, after President Trump said, like, this is going to go away or, you know, there's nothing to worry about. Do you think that, like, in part, it was his fault that this spread so badly in the United States? Look, there was going to be this was going to be bad regardless. So let me say that it's not like, you know, if somebody else had been president there, there nobody would have died in this country. Like, there is no place that hasn't been touched by this and hasn't been significantly impacted. That being said, clearly, yeah, White House um, over the past year did a horrifyingly bad job of dealing with this issue um, of getting um, hospitals the supplies that they need, of encouraging people to get to wear masks. And yeah, I do think that president refusing to wear a mask for so long and so often, you know, being seen in public without wearing a mask, like that sends a signal to people that you don't need to wear a mask. And I think that more people would be alive right now um, if you just worn a mask and told everybody to wear a mask. And yeah, the reality is like we have, yeah, I haven't checked the numbers that recently, but US has something like 5% of the world's population and we have 20% of the world's um, COVID deaths, something like that. So yeah, we've done a terrible job. There's there's no way around that than that, you know, yeah, the White House played a massive role in that. Yeah, what's the craziest thing that you think has happened all of 2020? Like the craziest. Or top three, because it's a lot of crazy stuff. <laughs> oh god. Um <laughs> You're like this is the year you forget. Okay. I mean it's the year that I won't forget and also desperately want to forget. <laughs> I, I, I hope, yeah. Um, I mean, just from the, you know, the things that are powerful and, and inspiring Black Lives Matters protests over the summer and seeing, you know, um, yeah, millions of people coalescing around that to the, yeah, horrifying things of, of White House take covid so not seriously and for so many people to die and have their lives impacted and for this country yeah for so many people in this country to want to reopen and and let people die so that it won't you know hurt their businesses and hurt the economy like it's just it's been it's been horrifying and depressing um year needless to say and you know you want to write it off as well, 2020 was crazy and awful and, you know, write it off. But, you know, then we get to 2021 and what happens at the Capitol happens. And, um, and 
yeah, I think the reality is we have a, you know, we're not going to be able to just wash our hands of 2020 and wash our hands of the last four years and pretend like it didn't happen. Like there's real damage that's been done. And a lot of the same forces are still present in this country and in our society. So we're going to have to figure out how we fix all the stuff that's broken and prevent, you know, more horrible things from happening in the future. I used to work in a school um, in Middle Village as like an after school program. And we still did it this year. And in my head, I was like, who wants their kids to go to an after school program that they might get COVID? It's really hard. And the number of conversations I've had about everything, people said, they're like, oh, I hate that indoor dining closed. I said, I mean, it's for the betterment of everyone else. It's just to be safe. And they said, but they didn't close down all the protests. And I said, that's a First Amendment right. You can't close it down like a business. That's crazy. And they've had also other conversations with teachers. This school is like an elementary school. And these teachers are like saying that Trump is trying to help everyone. Well, one teacher, one teacher, she she overheard a conversation that me and a coworker were having and she butted in and she was like, Trump is trying to help us, help the little little people like us. And, you know, he's exposing everyone. And knowing that I wasn't going to go anywhere with her, middle-aged white woman, really strong about her beliefs, and even said that Candace Owens was a pretty good source. I, yeah, so I was like, okay, um, do I say something or do I just leave it? So I just left it and I heard everything she had to say. And I think that thing that really stuck with me was I don't see color. Because as a teacher, you have to, like you have to teach kids about what it means to be different colors and how to treat it. What are your thoughts on like they're including slavery and um, racism into the school systems now? I'll first say that um, our school system and our education system have been teaching racist ideas for a very, very long time now. And we need to kind of reckon with that and grapple with that. And yeah, it is horrifying to me to hear you recounting a story of a teacher saying that they don't see race um, and yet they also love Candace Owens. But yeah, I mean, for a long time in this country, yeah, we've had, and other people have, you know, written about this, but uh, elementary school and high school textbooks, basically like the state of Texas um, and their school system has had a kind of veto over um, what gets put in our textbooks. And so the Civil War has been fought in a very specific way, one that, you know, emphasizes states' rights and that it was about economics. Um, Yeah, the Civil War was about slavery. Um, And the period that followed saw the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And yeah, there's a long history of white supremacy in this country and long history of supporters of outright fascism in this country. And that doesn't get taught in the way that it needs to. One course I I talked about representations of uh, the Japanese during uh, World War II and kind of U.S.-made propaganda films. And while teaching on that, I talk about Japanese internment camps in this country and how hundreds of thousands of Japanese-American, yeah, American citizens of, of Japanese descent were rounded up and put in camps in this country during World War II. And most of my students didn't know about that. That's an important part of yeah, America's history. There's this kind of assumption that America's, you know, fought for good and for patriotic things and fought against fascism in World War II and all that. Then, yeah, that's true. But there's also this other thing that's been going on um, that we need to emphasize and grapple with. And so our education system needs to do a lot better job of reckoning um, with race, racism, and this country's history. And I hope that that will begin to change. And you have educators and academics pushing back on some of this. Um, At the same time, you have a backlash. So a couple days ago, um, on Martin Luther King Day, the Trump administration released the 1776 report, which was their, you know, new patriotic version of how American history should be taught. And it was their reaction against the New York Times doing what they call the 1619 Project, which was attempt to kind of recenter America's history around the introduction of slaves and slavery into North America and into this country. And yeah, we're going to kind of continue to have battles over this. And those battles of how we're teaching U.S.'s history, that makes such a big difference to how this country is going to move forward and whether we're going to at some point be able to reckon with the 
add stuff in our history and um, learn from it in a real way. I just remember like looking through my posts yesterday and seeing how Martin Luther King was just being posted as a peaceful man. And I had to ask my my younger brother and sister because my sister is in high school and my brother, he's starting middle school. So I asked them like, what do you know about Martin Luther King? And they're like, didn't he just like walk for people and like he was a hero? I said, he did more than that. After he died, people rioted and things got done after they rioted. I told him, if you don't think that riots change, like make change, it, you don't see that, you know, it does happen and it does make change. And it did happen before, which is why people are so prone to, you know, turning to riots when they want change to happen. And I just, I just hated seeing that a lot of people were posting, you know, BLM is using MLK's words and twisting them. It mind boggles me how they just forget a part of history. What do you hope will come out of like all of this, all this stuff that everyone's doing to make an equal system of a sort? I'll say two things. First is, yeah, about MLK. Yeah, this is a topic I've taught courses before about yeah, the kind of appropriation of MLK's legacy by conservatives. And yeah, he often gets emphasized that he was, yeah, that he wanted colorblind world um, that... You know, and so you get the quote again and again that he has a dream of people not being judged by their color. And the people, yeah, a lot of the people who are quoting that part of what uh, MLK said would hate if they bothered to read um, the rest of what he said. Um, MLK was in favor of affirmative action. He was anti-capitalist. He, he was pushing back in his um, later years about poverty, about um, the unfair treatment of poor people in this country. When he was assassinated, he was the most hated political uh, public figure in the U.S. He was not this beloved, you know, everybody can get behind figure. He was hated. He was immensely controversial. And great that this country now celebrates um, MLK as a important um, figure in this country's history, but in doing so, we should reckon with um, the fullness of um, MLK. What do I hope? Where do things go from here? I don't have an easy answer for that. Uh, like I said, I hope that, you know, commit to reforming our democratic process. I hope that, yeah, we enact real change designed to, yeah, combat, um, yeah, structural, racial economic gender inequalities in this country and yeah do so in a way that's not just symbolic but is actually getting at the roots um, and structures of these problems there's a lot of work to be done i don't think there's any one you know yeah magic bullet that'll fix everything and it's gonna take a lot of work um, not only by politicians but by ordinary people by continuing to um protest and by continuing to vote um, in the years ahead and not just being like, well, we got rid of Trump and now we can all move on and everything will be fine now. And then inevitably get disappointed that everything isn't fine. Um, you don't get to stop caring and stop paying attention. It's a, it's a constant um, process that needs to happen. Um, so hope people keep doing that. Like I was just looking back right now, like on how um, the different schools that I've been to, like, I went to middle school in a very different neighborhood than I am in. So, like, Massford is, you know, predominantly, like, Italian-Irish. When I went to middle school, I ended up going to Corona, IS-61. I don't know why, but uh, my mom was just like, just, just go there, you know? They have a program. But I get there, and it's really different than, like, the school I've been in. Like, everything's kind of, it's diverse there. It's, you know, um, mostly Latinos and African-Americans in that school my teachers were just filled with color. There wasn't any Asian teachers because it wasn't like that. But um, when I got to high school, it was masked with high school. And I just saw how white it was. Like, I was looking at all the staff, two, three people of color that were teachers. And it was really different because in middle school, my English teacher actually gave us books about people of color as like young adult books. So it was Sharon M. Draper. I don't know if you know who that is, but like she writes books about African-American adolescents. And it's it's really good because you see the difference in these writings. And then when I get to high school, I see all these white writings and classical books. Like, what did we read about? We read The Odyssey and... and uh, Yeah, we read that too. Yeah, so I'm like looking and I'm like, wow, like we actually learned stuff when I was in middle school. But now I'm here and I'm trying to learn Latin and all these things that like... I don't think will really help me, 
you know, socially or think more. So it's, I think when the difference in like where you are too also affects how you learn. Look, it's a real, yeah. And I'd say this recognizing my own privilege as a white man, which is that, yeah, I I never had to look far to find, you know, people who look and sound like me. Um, But as you get older, you hopefully realize that that's not the experience for everybody. And there is a power in seeing yourself, seeing yourself in other people and in people in positions of power and in the media. It's incredibly disempowering to feel invisible. It's incredibly disempowering when, yeah, you, none of your teachers look like you and, and, you know, you go to the movies and none of the people in the movies look like you. Um, that's an incredibly disempowering feeling. Um, and seeing people look like you again isn't, you know, that's not enough on its own. You know, we need policies that are going to combat these um, structural inequalities. But at the same time, um, yeah, representation does matter um, in a real way. It's so crazy because like even growing up, the only thing that people really like um, recognized me was you look like Mulan. It's like I'm Filipino. <laughs> I'm not even not Chinese. the same place. It's not the same place. <laughs> yeah, and like it's crazy because even when um the coronavirus started, someone was saying, "Oh my God, it's all their fault. It's China's fault. It's ridiculous." And I'm standing next to them, like, "Damn Asians, right?" Like, and he was like, "You're not Asian." I was like, "I'm Filipino." He's like, "That's not Asians." I'm like, "Yes, it is." And it was like the weirdest conversation. Like I had so many weird conversations this year. I had to like really look at myself and think, who am I friends with? Mm. Like, like this is just like a weird, it was a weird thing entirely. Just fighting about geography of where I'm from was like, what? You're going to argue with me and tell me where I'm from? Like, it's crazy. And, and Yeah, it's always, it's always nice when someone who's who's not in in a particular group gets to you know tell people in that group you know whether they're in it or not that's that's always great i think that we like people say that you know we should be able to get along even though we don't have the same political views and you know i agree with that i think that if you know you are a republican then whatever you're a republican you have these beliefs but i also don't think you should go ignoring about like real problems that are actually happening you know, there's a difference between having different beliefs and just ignoring a problem and not really actively thinking about it. You can say all you want that black people brought it, like, brought it on themselves. How did they? Like, they don't choose to be black and they also don't choose to get stopped by, like, a cop if a cop just so feels to stop them for, you know, a particular reason of the skin color. It's entirely, like, impossible to get along and have different views. Yeah, I think two things are true. One is that... um my mom's not a Republican, but we have political disagreements and we argue and she's still my mom. And yeah, and I think that we should talk to people who don't have the same politics as us and um, have civil dialogue. That said, there are people who are um, with their political views are actively doing harm to other people. And um, it's it's hard for me to have empathy for people who fundamentally don't have empathy for other people. And so, yeah, you might have a, you know, great relationship with the police um, and never have any problems with the police, but you should try to have some empathy for the fact that your experience is not universal and that there are people who have very different um, types of interactions with the police. Um, And yeah, you might be you know in this country legally and so you know wonder you know yeah why should it, why should i care about the fact that families are are being separated at the border and refugees aren't being allowed in this country but have some empathy for other people and yeah on the one hand i do think dialogue across political differences is important and, and it is a value that i care about on the other hand it's hard when the you you're being asked to have empathy for people who don't have empathy for other people um and that'll always be a challenge i'm gonna ask my last question like overall because this is a really good conversation to go back to the siege because like this was like what my episode was supposed to be about but we covered a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah sorry um, about that. <laughs> no 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 it's really good because you know we're covering a lot of ground about trump's presidency and how it affected everything as a whole you know people just think that oh he was a a bigot in office but no he 
opened everyone's eyes about everything and like there's a lot to think about um do you think that the siege of the capital do you think that kind of aligns with what trump represented in short yes i mean i think that's true in like uh, a couple different ways so one is um Trump over the last uh, four or five years, he has steadfastly refused to denounce white supremacist and fascist-leaning supporters. And he's refused to denounce, yeah, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, David Duke. And he refused to condemn white supremacist terrorists after um, Charlottesville Unite the Right rally. And at the presidential debate um, just in October, he refused to denounce the violent Proud Boys. He is again and again refused to condemn extremist supporters. And those supporters have in turn taken that lack of condemnation to be a sign of Trump's support. And you can see videos from inside the Capitol as people are rioting there of um, them saying Trump would want us to do this. We are Trump's army. And so in that way, yeah, his kind of lack of denunciation of these people is absolutely furthered their pushing and doing new kind of yeah scary actions like the um, events at the Capitol. And then also there's just the very direct way of Trump repeatedly saying that the election was stolen and that he actually won in a landslide, but there was massive voter fraud. Accepting the results of the election and conceding the fundamental basis of our democracy. It's the way it works. And it's been clear for um, four or five years now that Trump doesn't fundamentally believe in democracy, doesn't believe in checks and balances and separations of power. Um, when he In 2016, when he lost the Iowa caucus to Ted Cruz, he accused Ted Cruz of having stolen it through voter fraud. Um, he's been doing this and has done this repeatedly. And in the wake of, yeah, the election in November 2020, he fought in the courts, lost repeatedly, and continued to say that they stole the election from us and that you need to show strength in battling against these people who've stolen the election. That's an incitement to violence. I'm telling his supporters that is an incitement to violence. Um, and yeah, so all that's just to say that Trump bears very real culpability for what happened at the Capitol. They'll also say that he's only able to do that because of how many Republicans lied lined up behind him and yeah how many republican senators were willing to back claims about um, voter fraud in the election and the election having been stolen and even after the events at the capitol um, when they were voting to certify the election results there were still over half of republican congressmen um, who were voting against uh, certifying the election results and that's terrifying so yes um, yeah trump very much there's culpability here and laid the groundwork for the assault on the Capitol, but it's also not just about Trump. There is a broader problem in the Republican Party um, of allowing extremism to fester. You have been listening to QC Pod, the podcast about all things Queens College. We are on Twitter at QC Pod and on the web at qcpodcastlab.org backslash qcpod. Our theme music is Lake Monsters by John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. I'm Samantha Galvez-Montiel. Thank you for listening.